Hey, survivalists. This is The Crux, and I'm your host, Casey McIntosh. And I'm Tessa King. Today, we'll be discussing Mauro Prosperi's story, a man who is nicknamed the Robinson Crusoe of the desert when he was lost in the Sahara for nine days, all alone and with limited provisions. So before you start the story, I got to know, like Robinson Crusoe, does he run into cannibals? Um, I don't think so. Not to my knowledge. I think he, yeah, no. (laughs) Final answer. No. Final answer. (laughs) No cannibals. No cannibals. We might have to ask him in another episode. Okay. If he's willing to speak after we tell his story. Hopefully not badly. Yeah. Okay. I I can live with that. Okay. So you can also watch um, Expeditions of the Edge, a Sahara Nightmare and uh, Lost in the Desert, which is a Netflix series um, on this topic. So, Moro Prosperi was born in the capital city of Rome on July 13, 1955. He started working for the police department, the National Police Force of Italy, as a crowd control police officer atop a horse in Catalina. I didn't know that was still a thing. Yeah, apparently it is. Italy's police federation subsidized training of national caliber athletes, and I think this is what motivated him to take this job. I think he actually found it to be sort of a boring prospect, but, you know, it allowed him to do what he wanted to do, which was actually um, the modern pentathlon. What's a pentathlon? So um, this, this is something that actually happens in the Olympics, or it did at one point. So the modern pentathlon is an event comprised of pistol shooting, fencing, swimming, horseback riding, and running. So basically, you have to be very skilled in many, many areas. You know, I always thought that shooting and running had a big crossover. So. <laughs> the agility, Tessa. <laughs> yeah, you have to have many skills. Yes. So Good hand-eye coordination, see it all fits together. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So um, he met his wife. Uh, her name was Sinza Paglieria. They met at a pre-Olympic pentathlon event when she was working as an English and Russian language interpreter. How, uh, what year was all of this? Just out of curiosity. So, you know, this is probably in the 80s. I'm not sure exactly what year they met. Okay. So um, they actually had three children together. And what she liked about him was because he was really enthusiastic towards overcoming obstacles. Clearly. Clearly, yes. Um so in any case, he, he found out about the marathon disables um, from one of his friends. And this is the marathon that, that kind of tipped this whole trip off to the Sahara Desert. Um, so in a statement to the BBC, Prosperity states, What I like most about running extreme marathons is the fact that you come into close contact with nature The races take place in beautiful settings such as mountains, deserts, glaciers. As a professional athlete, I hadn't been able to enjoy these surroundings because I was so focused on winning medals. I found out about the marathon disables by chance. I'd already retired from the pentathlon when a good friend said to me, there's this amazing marathon in the desert, but it's very tough. I love a challenge, so I started training immediately, running 40 kilometers, 25 miles a day, reducing the amount of water I was drinking to get used to dehydration. I was never home. How popular is this marathon? Well, at that point, it was not very popular. So, Did it get popularized by the fact that he almost died doing it? You know, I don't know if that was a direct link to making it more popular. It, it may have. But at the time at which he uh, was about to run this race, there were over 100 applicants when Prosperi did this. 
Um, and this is 1994, by the way. Um, but there were only 80 participants. And so today, there's something like 1,200 French and foreign participants. So um, I want to tell you a little bit about the race. So the Marathon Disable is a seven-day race through the Moroccan Sahara. It's the equivalent of running six marathons in a row, which is 155 miles or 250 kilometers. Gross. Yeah. All while using self-support. So you have to carry your food and sleeping gear. What about water? They um, don't, they have to carry their water in their packs, but they provide water at each checkpoint. Um, and they're located throughout, like water stops are located throughout each stage of the race. And so there are two to six checkpoints, depending on the length of the race for the day. And each um, competitor must go through those water checkpoints. Otherwise, you're, you know, you get um, dinged or, you know, maybe disqualified. Um, so water allotments um, range, depending upon the stage, from 12 liters. So they said liaison stage, which I don't know what that is really, is 12 liters. Marathon stage is 15 liters per person per day. And the nonstop stage is 25.5 liters per day. So that's quite a bit of water. Okay, so um, wait before you continue. Is there any information about what the average mileage is covered per day? You know, I didn't really see that. Um, I think it probably had to do with the terrain. You know, if it's a mm-hmm. lot of up and down steep terrain, they probably would reduce the the mileage. Right, just an extended marathon. It's really hard to understand how they break it up. Yeah, maybe someone could shed some light on this because I'm sure. But that would be my guess. Just you know, if it's really a lot of elevation climb, then probably it's fewer miles. But um, so basically, the marathon disables is organized by the Atlantide Organization Internationale, um, and so it is a ten-day race. So on their website now, they're saying again, one thousand two hundred French and foreign participant participants. Um, anyone meeting these following conditions are accepted. So over 18, any citizenship, medical certification issued by the organization stating their ability to participate in arresting EKG. Um, Due to the nature of the race, the organization is obliged to advise participants to take out their own accident and death insurance. Holy crap. So um, in an interview with the BBC in 2014, Prosperi noted that there was a form you had to sign that specifies where you want your body to be sent if you perish. I wonder how common it is to die during a race in the desert. It's funny that you ask that because I was about to tell you. I love it. (laughs) So the promoters of the race have called it the toughest foot race on earth. However, the only, only one contestant perished at the point at which Prosperi went on this race. And that was a French runner who died of a massive heart attack in 1988. So no one else had gone missing or, and nothing, nothing bad had happened to anyone at this point. They were just covering their bases. Yeah. And also, I think part of it is the thrill of, you know, you might die here. Yeah, because that adds another, you know, maybe level of desirability for some people. Yeah, you get some bragging rights afterward. Exactly. It is interesting that there's no qualifying aspect. Like, you don't have to have any previous experience. Like, you have to qualify for the Boston Marathon. But if you want to run, like, six consecutive marathons, it's fine as long as you have a good heart. Well, the other thing is that people can walk this race and a lot of people apparently have walked it. So it doesn't mean that you have, you know, you Mm -hmm. don't have to run, but obviously there are extreme circumstances just Mm -hmm. in terms of weather because they're even walking that long, you know, if you're not in stellar shape and you're in the desert, 
I still think you wouldn't be very prepared. Yeah, I'm sure you're losing so so much water. Mm-hmm. Like it's easy to be like, yeah, sure, I could walk for ten days, but yeah, exactly. <laughs> Remember, it's 115 degrees. Yeah, and it's very dry. And I'm not a camel. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> I'm a little surprised. Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Prosperi. Uh, competed in 1994, as I said before. He was alone for the majority of the beginning of the race because there are 80 participants and many of them were not running. And, you know, he's very, very driven, especially with his history of competition. Mm -hmm. He wants to get to the finish line. It's important to him. Yeah, he was talking about all the medals that he wanted to win and how this was different. So this is the fourth day of the marathon. It's the longest single stage of the race, and it's a distance of 57 miles between campsites in the desert and it's ending at this place called Zagora, which is a Berber village in the Palm Draw Valley. Um, on April 14th, the day of the race, the temperatures reached 115 degrees at the point of which Prosperi passed the third checkpoint, 20 miles into the day's journey, where he picked up his two liter ration of water around one o'clock in the afternoon. His friend Giovanni Manzo helped him tape his blister on his foot. And so this is actually the person who had told him about the race in the first place. Mm-hmm. So they were kind of running together or they just, yeah, they, they were running together, but Moro was kind of, um, running in front of him. So 15 minutes after he left the checkpoint, the wind really started kicking up and it worked its way into this blinding sandstorm with basically zero visibility. So the marathoners on the course were forced to wrap themselves in sleeping bags to ride out the storm. Are they carrying sleeping bags with them? Yes. Okay. Yep. So, That's right. You did say they have to be self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. I do listen sometimes. And in this case, it's probably good that they were self-sufficient. Otherwise, mm-hmm. they would just it oh, would it have, would been, have been terrible. So basically, the sand it stings the skin can cause bloody noses and respiratory tract abrasions, and mm-hmm. I would imagine that it would cause skin abrasions too. It was, it's probably terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, so the storm lasted for six hours at least six hours. So do they just hunker down for that whole six hours? From what I understand, that's what they're supposed to do. That's what the the organizers tell them, that if you get stuck in a sandstorm, you need to stay exactly where you are. Mm-hmm. And I think you can be disqualified if you actually do leave that point because it's a safety issue. And actually today you have to have a spot device, uh, a satellite device, because probably because of this story that we're getting yeah. into. <laughs> For good reason. Because of prosperity. <laughs> yes. So again, it lasted for six plus hours. And that evening, officials became concerned when um, Manzo came in the fourth checkpoint without any signs of prosperity, who'd been, again, running in front of him and should have finished hours earlier. Um, however, the race officials trusted that prosperity wouldn't have strayed very far. Uh, so they decided to initiate a full-scale search in the morning if he didn't show up over the course of the night. So... The next day at daybreak, when he hadn't showed up still, the race employees were dispatched in Land Rovers to search the trail, and a pilot did a flyover. They covered the terrain in a grid-like pattern, and their concern was about his water supply because he had at most two liters of water. And so by the yeah, noon temperatures, not, not when, remember, the smallest amount of water that they gave to these participants was 12.5 liters, um, you know, up to, what. Well, over 20. So he has two. Maybe. They covered the grid pattern and because of his water supply, again, they were concerned and it it was supposed to be triple digits by noon that day. Um, The Moroccan military joined the search later in the morning using Bedouin trackers and helicopter and they worked all day and all night. 
Um, Prosperi was missing for over two days before his wife heard the news. And guess how she found out? Through the news? Yes. (laughs) The newspaper. Yeah, that's not great. No. So at this point, Prosperi's brother, Ricardo, and two Interpol investigators from Rome and Prosperi's brother-in-law, Fabio, organized a search effort of their own. Um, The Italian authorities became involved in the search. Um, Officials in Rome and Italy's embassy in Morocco provided funds and vehicles. So it's like a huge undertaking to find this guy. How long into it are we now? Two days. Okay, just still two days. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the largest rescue attempts in the Sahara after 1982. There was a 1982 search for Mark Thatcher, son of then Prime Minister's Margaret Thatcher, who's lost six days after his car broke down during the Paris-Dakar rally. And I didn't look into this. To f- I'm, I'm assuming that they found him. Um, so anyway, it was a huge search effort. So on Sunday, April 17, racers crossed the finish line in Zagora, and there was a banquet held the next day, but it seemed like a memorial. At this point, four days after his disappearance, there were only Italian volunteers led by Prosperi's brother-in-law um, because the authorities were basically calling it futile at that point. And the Moroccan military had never heard of a man surviving over four days in the Sahara without water. So it's pretty bleak oh, at yeah. this point. Yeah, and you would think when they have people flying over, they can cover a lot of ground. So for them not to find him. But if you think about it, the desert is just such a large expanse that it's like finding a needle in a haystack, you sure. know? But I'm just thinking if I myself were lost in a sandstorm, I would not probably stray that far. I'm just thinking they probably didn't look too much farther than nearby where the actual trail or their route was. Yeah, I'm sure. Because they're thinking, oh, he has two liters of water. How far is he going to go? Yep. So on April 20th, so this is six and a half days into this ordeal, they found his water bottle and his aluminum emergency blanket near the Morocco-Algeria border. And so this gave hope to the searchers, which remember, this is just his family basically looking for him at this point. Um, So on day eight, one of Prosperi's shoelaces was found. But the situation seemed hopeless at this point, given the amount of time that had passed. What do you say that his Prosperi's were not looking very good? (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't help but keep going. (laughs) Okay, so now I'm going to read to you Prosperi's account of his... What was going on while everyone was searching? Exactly. Okay. And I just felt like his words would probably do it the best justice. So here it is. Suddenly, a very violent sandstorm began. The wind kicked up with a terrifying fury. I was swallowed by a yellow wall of sand. I was blinded. I couldn't breathe. The sand whipped my face. It was like a storm of needles. I understood for the first time how powerful a sandstorm could be. I turned my back on the wind and wrapped the scarf around my face to stop the sandstorm from wounding me. I wasn't disoriented, but I had to keep moving to keep from getting burnt, buried. Eventually, I crouched down into a shelter spot, waiting for the storm to end. It lasted eight hours. When the wind died down, it was dark, so I slept out there in the dunes. I was upset about the race, because until then I had been in fourth place. I thought, oh well, I can't win now, but I can still make good time. Tomorrow morning I'll get up really early and try to finish the Reach the finish. Oh my goodness, those priorities. I know. He's still thinking he's still <laughs> thinking about, you know, See, finishing the race at this point. So you have thirty-six hours to run the stage of the race. Any longer and you're disqualified. Which is pretty interesting. So there was still a chance. What I couldn't have imagined was how dramatically that storm would change everything around me. 
I woke up very early to a transformed landscape. I didn't know I was lost. I had a compass and a map, so I thought I could navigate perfectly well. But without points of reference, it was all a lot more complicated. I wasn't worried because I was knowing sooner or later I'd meet someone. Who knows how many others are in the same situation, I thought. As soon as I see someone, we can team up and we'll finish together. That was my plan, but unfortunately it didn't work out. After running for about four hours, I climbed up to a dune and still couldn't see anything. That's when I knew I had a big problem. I started to walk. What was the point of running? Running where? When I realized I was lost, the first thing I did was urinate into my spare water bottle. Because when you're still well hydrated, your urine is the clearest and most drinkable. I remember my grandfather telling me how during the war, he and his fellow soldiers had drunk their own urine when their water ran out. I did it as a precaution, but I wasn't desperate. I was sure the organizers would find me soon. When running the marathon disables, you have to be self-sufficient, and I was well-prepared. I had a knife, a compass, a sleeping bag, and plenty of dehydrated food in my backpack. The problem was water. We were given... Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, it's so crazy that it took that long for him to start worrying about it. Yeah. I think I think it was just the thought of, well, we were in this big sandstorm, and certainly I'm not the only one that's out here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, just to the point where he goes for so long before he thinks, hey, maybe I'm lost. But I think that's not necessarily a bad thing if you're in a scenario like this because it's probably the best not to freak out immediately. Yeah, don't panic. And and he still wasn't. You know, he was like, this is just a precautionary thing. Yeah, I'm just going to pee in this bottle, and I yeah. really hope I don't have to drink it later. Yeah, exactly. So it sounds like he was at least smart about it. The problem was water. We were given fresh water at the checkpoints, but when the storm hit, I only had a bottle of water left. I drank it as slowly as I could. I'm very resistant to heat, and I was very careful. I would only walk when it was cool early in the morning and then again in the evening. During the day, when I wasn't walking, I'd try to find shelter in the shade. I was wearing two hats, a baseball hat with a red woolen hat on top to keep the temperature as constant, consistent as possible. Luckily, my skin is quite dark, so I didn't really suffer from sunburn. On the second day at sunset, I heard a sound of a helicopter coming towards me. I assumed it was looking for me, so I took out my flare and shot it in the air, but it didn't see it. It was flying so low that I could see the pilot's helmet, but he didn't see me. It flew right past. Ugh. I know. That's terrible. I think that happens in a lot of situations like this. Mm -hmm. You're just so close. Yeah, it's amazing that he even had flares. That is amazing. Next time, bring two. Yeah. (laughs) The helicopter. (laughs) Yeah. The helicopter on loan from the the Moroccan police was returning to base to refuel. Since 1995, because of my experience, runners have been equipped with the kind of flares they use at sea, which they're not happy about because they weigh 500 grams. But at the time, the flames, the flares we had were really small, no bigger than a pen. Nevertheless, I remained calm because I was convinced organizers would have the resources to find anyone lost in the desert. I still thought I'd be rescued sooner or later. A couple of days, after a couple of days, I came across a marabout, a Muslim shrine where Bedouins stop when they are crossing the desert. I was hoping it was inhabited, but unfortunately, there was nobody there. Only a holy man in a coffin. Who? Mm, that's so not alive. Not alive. Not, <laughs> not alive. But at least I had a roof over my head. It was like being home. I assessed my situation. It wasn't rosy, but I was feeling all right physically. I ate some of my rations, which I cooked with fresh urine. Not the bottled urine that I was saving to drink. Oh I started to drink that on the fourth day. Oh, my. 
That's, that's chilling, a chilling thought. The marabout had filled up with sand, all from the sandstorms. So the ceiling was very low. I went up to the roof to plant my Italian flag in the hopes that anybody looking for me could see it. When I was up there, I saw some bats huddled together in the tower. I decided to drink their blood. You've seen that agility. I'm sorry to say it, but can you imagine catching a bat? That's, that's a very good point. I never thought about that. I mean, I'm sure a lot of desperation was going into that as well, but still. Maybe bats are sluggish in the desert because it's hot. Yeah, maybe. And they're, you know, they're and black, they're, so they're attracting heat. Well, also they're nighttime animals, so he probably yeah. got them oh, yeah, during the day. Yeah, while they're sleeping. Yep. So he cut off their heads and mushed up their insides with a fork. No, with a knife, excuse me. Then stuck them out. Ugh. I ate at least 20 of them raw. I only did what they do to their prey. That's crazy. He's lucky that he didn't get violently ill from something like that. I was thinking the same exact thing. I stayed in the marabout for a few days waiting to be found. I gave in to the despair only twice. Once when I was once when I saw the helicopter and I didn't see excuse me. Once when I saw the helicopter and it didn't see me. The other time when I was the other time was when I saw the airplane. I had been in the marabout for about three days when I heard the sound of a motor, an airplane. I didn't know if it was looking for me, but I immediately started to fire with whatever I had, the rucksack, everything, and hoped the plane would see the smoke. But just then another sandstorm hit. It lasted for 12 hours. The airplane didn't spot me. It felt like my very last chance to be found. I was depressed. I was convinced I was going to die and that it was going to be an agonizing death. So I wanted to accelerate it. I thought if I died in the desert, no one would find me and my wife would get the police pension in Italy. If somebody goes missing, you have to wait 10 years before they can be declared dead. Oh, that's horrible. At least if I died in this Muslim shrine, they wouldn't find my body and my wife would have had, had the income. So basically what he's saying is that his wife would get paid for 10 years, the income from his police job, because he couldn't be declared dead for 10 years. So he thought, oh, if I, if I die in the desert in this place. Oh, I and thought you were saying that if he wasn't found, they wouldn't declare him dead and she wouldn't get paid. No, he, he's saying the opposite, opposite of that. Okay. Well, that's some optimism when you're in the face of death. Yeah, I guess so. I wasn't afraid of dying, and my decision to take my own life came out of logical reasoning rather than despair. I wrote a night, note to my wife on a piece of charcoal and then cut my wrists. I lay down and waited to die. But get this. But my blood had thickened and wouldn't drain. That's how dehydrated he is. Oh, my gosh. I, I yeah. didn't know that could happen. I didn't either. So the following morning I woke up. I hadn't managed to kill myself. Death didn't want me yet. I took it as a sign. I regained confidence and I decided that to see it as a new competition against myself. I became determined and focused again. I was thinking for my children. I put myself in order. Moro, the athlete, was back. I needed to have a plan. I still had quite a lot of energy left. I wasn't tired. As a former pentathlete, I was used to training 12 hours a day, and I had trained for the, well for the marathon disables, so I didn't feel too weak. I still had energy tablets, too. That's amazing. Yeah, I think that um, all of that archery, or not archery, excuse me, all of the, the um, you know, shooting with the guns in the mm -hmm. pentathlons probably, you know, got him ready for this the most out of, all, out of, all, <laughs> out of all of the other things that yeah. he had to do. Maybe the... Uh, the fencing. Did oh, I say fencing? fencing? No, you no, didn't. I guess that should be part of a, penta a pentathlon, except for that's six things. So we're going to, I don't I thought, know. I thought fencing was already part of it. Oh, is it? Okay. I'm going to just uh, mean, delete that whole section that we just. You can just listen earlier in the episode <laughs> and fact check us yourselves. <laughs> Good call. Okay. 
So I regained my strength and mental lucidity. I decided to go to the shrine and get walking again, but where to? I followed the advice that the Tureg had given us before we started the race. If you're lost, head for the clouds that you can see on the horizon at dawn. This is where you will find life. Good point. The clouds? The clouds. I mean, think about the fact that when you're in the desert, there's not probably a lot obstructing the clouds. So... Maybe it's Does because that that's where the water moisture? is. Yeah, that's my best guess. It's yeah, because that's where life is. Yeah, where there, there's water. Well, so, good to know if I'm ever lost in the desert. Yes, put that down on the list of things to do. Um, Get lost in the desert. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Follow the clouds. So during the day, they will disappear, but set your compass and carry on in that direction. So I decided to head for those mythical clouds on the horizon. I walked in the desert for days, killing snakes and lizards and eating them raw. In that way, I drank too. I think there are some instincts, a kind of deja vu, that kick in in an emergency situation. My inner caveman emerged. Well, all these survival stories where you hear about people killing animals to live, I think you just get to that, to that point. You're yeah. either going to do it or you're going to die. Yeah. It's, I hope I don't ever have to be in that situation. I might die. Yeah, I mean, we're all going to die. But you don't want to yeah. have to be at, like, I'm going to die in the next 10 hours if I don't eat this alive lizard. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't even imagine being in that scenario. I, I mean, I'm not that picky of an eater. I don't think I would be if I was dying, but. What if lizards taste like mushrooms? Well, then I would be screwed. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends if they taste like it or the texture is like mushrooms. I bet the texture is going to be worse than mushrooms. Okay. So anyway, um, I was aware that my, I was losing my, excuse me. I was aware that I was losing an incredible amount of weight. The more I walked, the looser my watch fell on my wrist. I was so dehydrated. I couldn't urinate anymore. And luckily I had some anti-diarrheal medication, which I kept taking. Oh, so maybe that know. helped when he was eating the animals. I don't know. I don't know that that's something you want to take, but yeah, I'm because not sure. it would be taking away moisture, right? If I mean, like, if yeah, I'm not sure. We'll have to figure out how those things really work. But yeah. I mean, you're definitely he wasn't pooping either. That's what we know. Well, I mean, if he's not peeing, he's not pooping. <laughs> that's a good point. Okay, so I wanted to see my friends and my family and friends again, and I concentrated on that. I wasn't afraid. At the same time, I started to view the desert as a place where people can live. I could see the beauty of the desert. I paid careful attention to every trace. Even dried excrement gave me clues about what direction to go in. I learned that there was food all around you if you learned to look. I was looking... I was walking through the desert. I recognized a dried riverbed where succulents grew. So I squeezed the juice out and drank that. I started to think of myself as a man of the desert. Later, a Tuareg prince dedicated a poem to me. According to him, I was the chosen one because I survived so long in the desert. Meanwhile, the organizers were out looking for me. My brother and brother-in-law had flown from Italy to join the search. They found some of the traces I'd left behind, like my shoelaces. They got to the marabout and found signs of me, but they were sure they, sure they were only looking for a body. On the eighth day, I came to a little oasis. I lay down and drank, sipping slowly for about six or seven hours. I saw a footprint in the sand, so I knew people couldn't be far. Ah, that's the Robinson Crusoe bit. It's because oh, he knew yes. that there were people on the island because of a footprint. Oh. Things are falling into place. <laughs> 
The next day, I saw some goats in the dis- in the distance. It gave me hope. Then I saw a young shepherd girl. She saw me too and ran away scared. After nine days in the desert, I must have looked quite a sight. I was black with dirt. The girl ran towards the large Berber tent to warn the women I was coming. There were no men in the camp. They had all gone to market. But the women took care of me. They were so kind. The older woman gave me came out of the tent and immediately gave me some goat's milk to drink. She tried to give me some foods as well, but I threw it up. They wouldn't allow me into the tent because I'm a man, but they put me on the carpet in the shade of their veranda. They sent someone to call the police. They like to camp close to military bases for protection. Police came and carried me to their Jeep. They took me to their military base, blindfolded because they didn't know who I was. They thought I might be dangerous. They had guns, and I thought at times they were going to kill me. When they found out I was the marathon runner who'd gotten lost in Morocco, they took off my blindfold and celebrated. I discovered that I had crossed the border into Algeria. Oh, my goodness. I was 291 kilometers, 181 miles off course. Holy cow. Yep. They took me to a hospital in Tindouf, where finally after 10 days I was able to call my wife. The first thing I said to her was, Have you already had my funeral? Because after 10 days in the desert, you would expect someone to be dead. When they weighed me at the hospital, I had lost 16 kilograms, 35 pounds. I weighed just 45 kilograms, 99 pounds. My eyes had suffered and my liver was damaged, but my kidneys were fine. I couldn't eat anything other than super liquids for months. It took me almost two years to recover. So the place that they found him, well, he had traversed this mountain range which is a tense border between Algeria, Algeria and Morocco, or Algerio. Algeria. <laughs> Removed to be peppered with landmines. Touareg nomads found him 25 miles into Algeria, which I think I already said that. So you're saying that he could have exploded. He could have. It's definitely possible. Um, so when he got to the hospital, they gave him 16 liters of IV fluids, and he was near liver failure, but after a day and a half, that's when he called his home. And he stayed another seven days in the hospital. And then he was sent home to Rome. And he was treated like he was a hero in this walking miracle. And like he rose from the dead. And he was celebrated in newspapers everywhere. Um, so, you know, shortly after he arrived home, people were starting to doubt his story. Because this is the longest anyone had ever been in the desert. And the organizers of the Marathon Disables accused him of fraud. And Prosperi considered a lawsuit against the Patrick Bauer. Patrick Bauer is the, is the main guy. He's the one that started this race in the first place. Um, he ended up dropping this lawsuit because he felt like it was a personal conflict and not a legal one. Mm-hmm. Um, later, a Roman film crew retraced the steps for a 1995 documentary. And they found the shrine and some of his belongings and bat skeletons. Um, so, I mean, you would think that that would... Legitimize that would, it? Yeah. Um, and the other thing is he's stuck to every single detail of the story every time that he's told it. It's never changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just don't know why you would do that, besides maybe the publicity of it all, but that even seems a little wild. Yeah, maybe a little extreme. Maybe a day or two being lost, but nine days is a little... And committing to the fact where you only weigh 99 pounds. And you have liver damage. Yeah, I mean, come on. (laughs) Yeah. So um, 
this is the thing is that he had health problems that went on for a really long time. And for a month after he was found, he could only eat bland food that was blended in a blender. And he had severe leg cramps for a year after and sustained the liver damage was permanent. Um, but anyway, Bauer, the gentleman that started this race in the first place, the founder slash director of the race and a man who got the idea after a 200 mile solo expedition in 1984 says, don't listen to Mr. Prosperi. Um, his story is fabrication. He will have you believe he is Superman. It is physiologically impossible for a man to travel more than 200 kilometers in the desert without water. This is a supernatural act. While it's possible that he only got lost for a few days, but all the rest rings false, we believe that early on he was picked up by someone and then he decided to hide out for a while. He thought he could make a killing out of this if he prolonged the ordeal. He thought he could sell his story to the tabloids. He aspired to be the star of his own movie. Mm. So anyway, again, kind of wrapping up, I agree that it seems a little bit ludicrous that you would risk, still risk your life in an effort to be famous. Yeah, and maybe from their end, they're worried about, you know, the fact that this is a race that puts somebody's life at risk and nobody is going to want to do it. I don't know. I don't know why they would care enough. Maybe it, maybe it had something to do with this feeling of competition because this the guy that started this race basically got the idea by doing this solo trek in the desert. Mm-hmm. He was supported by, you know, he had other people that were sort of maybe supporting him by carrying his stuff, but basically mm-hmm. he did this big trek. Yeah, so it kind of detracts from the fact, the physical accomplishment of it, if there are people just surviving in the desert off of bats. Yeah, Exactly. For nine days. Yeah. Very I don't know. I mean, I don't know how long it took this Patrick guy to do his 200-mile trek. And I didn't do a lot of research into all the details of that story. But, I'm, I mean, clearly speculation. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I get why people have doubts about it because it's that extraordinary. It just it yes. seems absolutely crazy. And it just put yourself in that position, being out in the desert. And I could tell you that... Um, I wouldn't have even had the opportunity to pee in a bottle because I would have wet my pants long before the race. <laughs> I mean, right? Can you only imagine? You know what? I wouldn't be in the desert in the first place for this to happen to me. So. But I'm just saying, if you were lost in the desert, I mean, I I feel terrified just with that thought. I guess the one the one silver lining is that you're not being stalked by like large oh, animals. animals. But think about snakes. snakes. Yeah. Or landmines, apparently. Yeah, but I guess if you are in this state of hunger, you'd think about snakes as a food source. Yeah. And then it's just a fight to the death. It is. Between the two of you. Exactly. Yeah, well, I'm curious to see what people think, whether it's true or not. Because either way, it's pretty crazy. It's pretty crazy to fake that happening to you. It's pretty crazy for that to happen to you at all. I agree. I, I, I think it's authentic just given that that weight loss. And I mean, you would have oh, to not yeah. eat for days. And the health problems. Yeah. Who would sign up for that? I mean, come on. And also you have to willingly admit to be like, yeah, I cooked with my own pee to stay alive. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. I mean, probably worse things that you could do, but still. Yeah. I think the reason that he survived was because of his mentality for, for like making it to the finish line. Mm -hmm. And it also seems like he didn't panic at any point. All of 
the information from that personal statement sounds pretty reasonable and logical. He's like, I guess I just got to keep going. The funny thing is that if I was out in the desert for that long, I couldn't tell you what day what happened, honestly. Mm -hmm. Well, it's pretty amazing that he paid attention that, you know, he has a watch and he's like, it's a 12 hour sandstorm. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I guess what else are you doing besides trying to stay alive? What else is there? All right. Well, that's it for the crux this week. Listen in next week on Monday.